Welcome to Locked On NBA, your daily NBA podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. I'm Wes Goldberg, host of Locked On Warriors, here with David Vermel, the host of Locked On Heat. Today's show is brought to you by Rock Auto, rockauto.com. Go there to get all the parts you need for your car or truck at a reliably low price. We'll talk about ESPN's documentary on the decision later on, but let's start with the Lakers signing J.R. Smith to replace Avery Bradley, who's elected to sit out the bubble season in Florida. Now, J.R. Smith is 34 years old, hasn't played a game since November of 2018, and was really not very good for the Cavs since the Cavs won the finals in 2016. That said, do you think, David, that J.R. Smith can be a difference maker for the Lakers in this bubble resumption? I I do, actually. Uh, if there were nothing else, because he has a, an incredible level of familiarity and comfort playing alongside LeBron and what that entails. And to me, and I know I've referenced this not just on Locked on Heat, but also uh, with the show, I think you wrote to me anyway, a definitive piece about this years ago when you kind of explored what it was like for a player to join a team playing alongside LeBron and everything that entails, uh, you know, everything from Kyle Korver, I think was the focus of your piece, mm-hmm. but it was something that a lot of players have learned over the years is that it, you have to have a very particular mindset when you're joining a LeBron led team, especially now in his later years of his career is that he knows exactly what he wants and how he wants it. And I think your ability to thrive and play alongside him depends on your ability to understand those details and those nuances. And for a guy like Jr., who is not only just friendly with LeBron off the court, but also understands those intricacies on the court, it makes a lot of sense. He's probably not going to get a whole hell of a lot of playing time, but when he does, I think he's very well suited for the challenges of playing in the bubble and for also being able to contribute. For a player like him who's been sitting out all of the season, I think it's going to be an interest. He's not going to be thrown off by the whole complexities of the Orlando bubble, not any more than any other player. And I think he's going to be more eager to prove that he can still contribute at a high level. And those kind of factors psychologically, I think, benefit JR and eventually will benefit the Lakers as well. Really well said. He, you mentioned he probably won't get that much playing time. He's going to be behind Alex Caruso, Contavious Caldwell-Pope, Danny Green for sure. The Lakers signed Dion Waiters right at the end of right right before the season was postponed, and you figure Waiters was their first choice over J.R. Smith, and so or I shouldn't say first choice. I don't know that Dion Waiters is anybody's first choice, but he was their choice over hey, J.R. Smith. Hey. And um, so you would assume that Dion would get more playing time right away than J.R. Smith, or at least, you know, kind of have the inside track to that, depending on how they look when th- things resume. Um, and then, you've, of course, you've got Rajon Rondo, Quinn Cook, guys who whose minutes fluctuate uh, a lot. You know, Rajon Rondo gets a little bit more playing time than Quinn Cook, but J.R. Smith should probably be more of that mix. But, that you know, two key points that you make is you've got a lot of these guys who are sitting out, Avery Bradley included, because they're under contract, they, they're in the league, not to say they are taking it for granted, because I think their reasons for sitting out are warranted. And I'm actually surprised more players aren't doing that. Um, but for a guy like J.R. Smith, who has eagerly been trying to get back into the NBA, um, you would imagine he's been staying in shape. He's more accustomed to staying in shape in sort of a downtime, offseason sort of mode than these players who have you know the facilities and team facilities that they're accustomed to. So um, I just I don't know how good he'll be even if he's on the court. Yes, he has the familiarity with LeBron. That is tremendously helpful given the circumstance. There is a reason he is not in the league. I mean, this is a guy who hasn't averaged more than 10 points per game since the year the, the Cavs won the finals. Those those last three seasons, really two and a half seasons in Cleveland, um, or it's really two seasons and 11 games in Cleveland, he was not good. 
I mean, we're talking about 8.6 points per game going to 8.3 points per game going to 6.7 points per game. His field goal percentage was below 40% or at 40% each of those three years, which is just not three-point percentage, overall field goal percentage. Very bad. He hasn't been a 40% three-point shooter since, again, that last finals run with the Cavs. He doesn't bring much in the way of rebounds or assists or really defense all that much. Uh, He had maybe his best defensive season was the year they won the finals, and after that, he just wasn't the same sort of defender. Um, So, yeah, maybe this is a guy who can get on the court, bury a couple threes when they're important, Um, but I don't think that LeBron or the the Lakers necessarily want J.R. Smith uh, on the floor when it really matters. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I, I wonder also if he's going to create any kind of additional challenges for Frank Vogel. Uh, you know, he's handled. I think he's handled the Lakers a lot better than anyone expected him to. But at the same time, just adding another personality that kind of not necessarily kowtows to LeBron at the very least. You know, just uh, you know, it certainly knows how to placate LeBron and fit alongside him. Maybe that creates an additional challenge there, but. As far as the playing is concerned, yeah, there's not much there. I, I, I think he's, you know, he's only 34, which was surprising to me. It feels like he's been in the league for so long, but you forget that he kind of came out of high school, and so he's been in the league for, you know, almost 20 years now. But at the same time, he's, uh, you know, he, he, he's still young enough. I think he could be healthy enough to contribute. I, I mean, maybe the the year off kind of wet his appetite a little bit, and he'll be able to kind of reengage defensively. Uh, and, and you know. Uh, if, if he doesn't want to playing, it's kind of a, a no-lose situation. You, you need another player out there. Uh, hopefully he won't test positively for the COVID-19 virus, and if that's the case, he can at least you know contribute at some point on the court, and we'll see what happens. I, I mean, I don't think there have there have been any kind of particularly high expectations for JR, and I think it's kind of telling, as you pointed out, that Dion was chosen to go to sign with that team before him. I mean, I think that's probably due to the fact that Dion at least got some playing time in mm-hmm. Miami this past season. But it, it'll be interesting to see if JR gets any playing time or if he maybe he might leapfrog past Dion Waiters. You know, obviously Waiters, even though he was signed before Smith, you know, the last interaction he had with LeBron was not necessarily a positive one when I think LeBron was probably pretty eager for him to be traded to Oklahoma City, uh, you know, in 2014. And uh, yeah, as far as we know, LeBron may have been favoring Jarrett Smith this whole time, but the Lakers yeah. just went with where they had to probably sell Dion just because he had played recently. Unlike Jarrett Smith, I do think that of the of the two LA teams that added somebody for this resumption, um, you go Jarrett Smith to the Lakers, Joakim Noah to the Clippers over the weekend. I think Jarrett Smith will probably have more of an impact than Joakim Noah. At least I trust him to make more of an impact as a wing than Joakim Noah, who feels like he hasn't played for a decade. Like I don't like I didn't realize he was trying to get back in the NBA partly. So um, he signed a ten day contract prior to the hiatus, right? I think that's was right. the case. And so okay, so he was officially able to re-sign with the Clippers uh, because he, his ten day had expired, and so he was technically a free agent. Yeah, we'll see if he even gets on the court either. Um, one thing he was good with of... Memphis last year, though. Not to interrupt, yeah. but I, th- I thought he was pretty solid as a contributor last year with the Memphis. Yeah, he might he might work out for them. I and mean, look, they they. They like the bigs that they have, but there's not a ton of depth there. It it wouldn't shock me if both these guys played roles for their teams um, in Orlando, especially if other players opt out or, or fall you know, victim to COVID or whatever it might be. Um, the, but these are kind of the guys that we're seeing getting picked up right now, right? Like, it, had you been available, you probably got picked up before the season was paused. You, and now we're starting to see like these other bodies starting to get picked up by and they tend to be veteran guys J.R. Smith Joe Kim Noah guys who have played for several different teams 
who are accustomed to just sort of on the fly learning stuff and uh, can just sort of rely on their innate basketball IQ uh, and just wisdom to just make an impact. Um, coming up, why Fred Van Vliet says it was a difficult decision to resume the season in Florida, but first, with the ever-increasing number of vehicle makes and models, it can be impossible to stock all the parts you need, especially now while you may not be able to visit a traditional store. So do it easily online at rockauto.com. Rockauto.com is a family business serving auto parts to customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. They have everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even new carpet. Whether it's for your classic or your daily driver, get everything you need in a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. The rockauto.com catalog is remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose from the brand, specifications, and prices you prefer. Best of all, prices at rockauto.com are always reliably low without the markup you find at chain stores. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need, rockauto.com. Let's get to some headlines from around the league, and you choose whether or not you want to discuss the topic. It's a segment we call Blow the Whistle. If you want to stop on a topic, just say Blow the Whistle. If not, we'll play on. Wes, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Raptors guard Fred Van Vliet says it was difficult to decide whether or not to play in Orlando, saying on a conference call Monday, we all know the right thing to do is to not play, to take a stand. Morally, yes, that makes sense, but life goes on. We're all young, black guys. None of us want to give any money back. Play on or blow the whistle? Blow the whistle here, David. I, I this, is, um, this is really interesting to me because this is the first time we kind of heard a player say, I know we shouldn't play, but I'm going to play anyway. And I don't blame him. Like, this is a hard decision. We, You and I have discussed on this show whether or not, you know, morally it makes sense for NBA players to play or not. And, and the league, you know, the players in the league seem pretty split on it. Fred Van Vliet is, is clearly taking a stand. We shouldn't be playing right now with everything that's going on in the country. That said, I'm also not going to be, I'm not going to put myself in position as a black man to give money back to uh, not wield the power that I have. And it'll be interesting to see what he does when he ends up playing. Like to, say, to see, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, later on, but what, what, how does he use this new platform in order to maybe justify him going up against his own morals? And we talked last week about a guy like Davis Pertans who decided to sit out because he's going to be a free agent and he's young and he's due to get a lot of money, his biggest payday of his career. Fred Van Vliet is the same way. I mean, he is going to get paid. I mean, some people think he can make $20 million a year this summer. Uh, but he plays for a Raptors team that is a contender in the Eastern Conference. And for so for him to not only say, I don't want to give the money back, but I'm also playing for a contender, something, you know, quote-unquote bigger than me, but also being able to say, like, morally I'm against my own decision um, was pretty profound, I thought. It, it, the 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 quote maybe doesn't really show the full context of what he was saying. Like some of those statements, they were all young black guys, and then all at the same time, the following statement: none of us want to give money back. Kind of create a dichotomy there as far as what what the priority is for him. I, I think he understands that as young black men, that there's an obligation to continue to take a stand for Black Lives Matter, to continue to be uh, you know fighting against social injustice. But at the same time, he does understand that making money and continuing to cash in on the opportunities the NBA has provided for players like him and others 
is going to further fund that fight and and not just now but in the years to come and so it's important to not as he says give any of that money back they could yeah i mean to to just to extend on his quote i mean he says none of us want to give any money back i don't think that we should i think that money can be used in a number of different ways and like you said goes on to talk about social injustice and race and police brutality i mean this is this is something that he probably plans to um help with maybe some of the, the money that he makes by resuming the season if nothing else, then I do like the fact that he has, I think, amongst any player that I can recall, I think he's been the first to kind of talk about the moral ambiguity here of what's taking place here. Like, they understand that it's probably the wrong decision morally to go back and start playing, but at the same time, there are other things at stake here, and that it is a, a complex decision for these players, that they understand that, and I think that's... That's important to kind of recognize because I, I feel like we could turn on players very quickly because they've gone ahead and chosen to be part of this or, uh, you know, restart and things of that sort. And I think that kind of that would be disingenuous and, and, and hurtful. And I think it doesn't really prove anything. I mean, they're making a decision. I, I think even, you know, as early back, actually, I think right around the, the time the restart was originally discussed. Um, Austin Rivers made a point about that when he was kind of saying against Kyrie that, you know, Kyrie's made a lot of money, but for a lot of us, it's important for us to kind of go out there and continue to make that money so that we can further uh, the movement and everything else and, and that he understood how difficult this decision-making process was. And so it's it's interesting that he's kind of put it out there and then a lot of these players will have that same kind of moral ambiguity as far as what the restart entails, but knowing that they're, I think by and large, going in there with the right sort of attitude as far as what they can do during the next few weeks, months, however long they're in the Orlando bubble, as far as being a platform to further the movement and to, you know, make these kind of issues continue to, to inform people about what these issues represent. But let's let's move on to our next topic. Well, wait, here. can I can I, right before that, I, I've kind of just debated between this moral thing or not. And you and I, again, have talked about that quite a bit. And then I watch the Premier League resume. Um, and I'm not a big soccer watcher, but I'm, you know, I'm going to watch sports if it's on in the middle of the afternoon. Um, I'm pretty red and, and, and you know, I, I try to stay as informed as possible. I, don't, I know that's not the case with a lot of people, um, but I think it is the case for a lot of people, too. And I don't find watching the Premier League and seeing Liverpool win the Premier League championship, their first one in 30 years, necessarily distracted from anything. And you see a lot of those teams have Black Lives Matters across their jerseys. Um, and, and things like that, and I just I didn't find and look what's going on there and what's going on here are very different things, but I just didn't see it as much of a distraction. And I just I do I wonder if when this thing comes back and there is going to be basketball on, that we may have just been almost more distracted by the buildup of it, by the the constant flow of information versus just a game being on TV. Um, I, I look. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. I'm just I'm wondering because it felt like we talked so much about the buildup and whether or not it's going to be this or that and debate the moral value of this or that. But at the end of the day, it's just going to be something else on TV. And I I don't. I, I'm just I'm interested to see what our reaction ends up being and if maybe it's a little bit more overstated now than what it's actually going to be. That's possible. Um, anyway, NBA teams have been informed that they'll have the ability to replace staff members who test positive for COVID-19 in the Orlando campus and are unable to work, according to ESPN's Tim Bontemps. Play on or blow the whistle, Wes. Good to know, David, but just play on. I'm not interested in staff members. I, I think, I mean, it's uh, 
curiosity there as far as so many other details here. You, you kind of have these kind of patterns, the comfort level of players and things of that sort. You're traveling with a very limited party to begin with. I, I think it kind of could lead to an additional disruption there. Maybe not a significant one considering everything else that's going on. It is a, it's an interesting tidbit and factoid as far as what's taking place here, but probably not an earth-shattering one. Still good to know, I guess. Uh, not worth continuing to discuss further, though. So let's move on. Grizzlies rookie John Morant apologized on Twitter for reposting an image on social media with a profanity directed at police officers on the back of his jersey, writing that it, quote, didn't clearly and accurately convey what I wanted to share, end quote. Play on or blow the whistle. Blow the whistle. Um, look, you you look at what John Morant said. He said, you know, bleep 12, which is sort of a slang term that's anti-police, um, kind of in line with this announcement that the NBA may allow players to, you know, put social um, phrases or just something on their jerseys to sort of recognize and acknowledge the moment that we're living in. And he, he was sort of, you know, made a joke or, or you know, a, a, a comment on Twitter that that might be what he would put on his jersey. But I'm blowing the whistle here because I'm just so sick of these dumb apologies. Like, okay, I get, like, it's just, this is more in line with the Blue Lives Matter thing, which is so tone deaf to the moment right now like I, I just I'm so sick of guys having to just try to make a stand and maybe they cross a line and look you could say he crossed a line here that John Morant crossed a line here I'm just so sick of that though like big deal if he crosses a line like this is not about them right now John Morant by posting that isn't hurting anybody what is hurting people is the way people like John Morant black people in America are being treated right now and I, I just the, all these apologies and all this outrage against these guys is just, it's again completely missing the point. I'm sick of these apologies. If there's a time to cross the line, now is the time to do it, as long as it's something as just ridiculous as this. So I, I wish he didn't even apologize. It just seems ridiculous to me. I, I think, I mean, it's clear that somebody got to him, right? Whether it was somebody within Memphis or whether it was somebody mm-hmm. at the NBA level, it's pretty clear that somebody got to him and told him, look, you, you need to issue an apology right away. And maybe a lot of it has to do with the fact that the NBA just announced that they're going to be in partnership with Orange County police, uh, uh, you know, and Orlando area police as far as uh, adding protection to players as they're within the Orlando bubble and things of that sort. I, I imagine a lot of these police officers, cops could probably be uh, pretty pissed off at a young player kind of you know issuing a statement like that or even if it was somewhat jokingly or maybe not in, in full understanding of what it was that he was tweeting out. But I kind of agree with you. I think it's a pretty stupid half-hearted apology uh, about something he probably doesn't understand. He just kind of made a comment. And at the same time, uh, I think he should have been entitled to make that opinion. I, I mean, if, even if he was fully informed, which we don't know if he is or not, why not why not make, be able to make that statement? If, he, if he's summing up his feelings about how he feels about police brutality in this country by saying fuck 12, then I don't see why that's a problem, to be 100% honest with you. No, and, and, and look, there's one thing between tweeting it and another thing from writing bleep the police on your jersey in Orlando, like having the league sign off on that as your statement that you want to make. Like that is not going to happen. We all recognize that that is not going to happen, and that's why this is obviously a joke. Because he's not going to get to put that on the back of his jersey in Orlando. So just the whole concept of this was ridiculous. Um, you're right. Somebody definitely got to him. But whatever. Like this, I'm just, I am so sick of fake, I've never liked fake apologies. I've never liked that. I'm sorry if I've offended you. Like athlete, you know, script for apologies, which is a non-apology in the first place. 
oh, I'm sorry if you took it the wrong way type of apology, which this, that's what John Morant's apology was. I'm sorry if you took it the wrong way. It, it, and, you know, in, but he did own up to it a little bit more than that. But um, I'm, just, I'm just so sick of it. I'm just so sick of this stuff. Like, let's actually focus on doing things instead of apologizing for things. Have there been any stipulations as to what the, the jersey can be, you know, what it can contain or a number of letters? I mean, I, I'm sure they have to, you know, consider space and things of that sort. But if they can fit, you know, Gianna DeCumpo into a jersey, I wonder how much room they have for, like, a message. I mean, I think the I, only, uh, I think the only thing that we know for sure is that he can't say bleep the police anymore. Um, coming up, our takeaways from ESPN's documentary on the decision. This is Locked On NBA. ESPN had a documentary Sunday night outlining the process behind LeBron's decision in 2010. Some of the interesting tidbits include that the idea for the TV show came from a fan who was quoted in a Bill Simmons column, and that LeBron and his team learned from the experience of the decision to more tightly control their own narrative, which is why he went with written stories and statements to announce later free agency decisions. David, what did you find interesting from the show? Uh, Not much. Uh, I think it was not particularly... Um, it didn't really shed light on any kind of new details. I, I don't really think it was too much there. I, I think the the little bit about the, the, the show idea coming from a fan and that Bill Simmons helped push it into reality and things of that sort, that's somewhat interesting. But I, I think it also was interesting how later on in the show, it kind of hit on something that you and I have talked about, which is that you know the decision was perhaps the very first step for players understanding how much power they control as individuals and as an organization, as a self-powered organization, to control the narrative of how players react towards media, about what stories are told about them and how those stories are told. Uh, So I I thought that was somewhat interesting, but overall, it felt like an hour-long worth of programming that could have been condensed into half an hour, much like the decision itself. My yeah, that was my my takeaway was it was an a boring hour of television documenting a boring hour of television. Uh, I I I thought there were some things there that you're right could have just been condensed down, could have just been some cliff notes versions of it. Um, it's it's always interesting to sort of go back and remember these things ten years later. The fact that you didn't have LeBron or Maverick Carter kind of on the thing to talk about it. Um, it just it 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 didn't it it felt like it was missing weight. It felt like it was missing some sort of importance. But you know they kind of clear that up at the end, saying and or at least justify it as this is they don't do these things anymore. This was not produced by Uninterrupted or Spring Hill Entertainment. This was produced by ESPN, so they don't do our stuff anymore. Um, that's sort of you know in line with the point that LeBron and his team was making. Uh, I just found it. I don't, I'm, I'm watching it, and it's just one of my takeaways is: was there is there an athlete ever who is so representative of his hometown, is the faces of his hometown, the way LeBron is of Akron? Like, I just I can't think of any athlete who has ever become the face of his hometown the way LeBron has become the face of Akron. That was so glaring to me when I was watching that. I I uh, would have to assume that maybe of an older player from an older generation that even I'm not familiar with is might fit the bill, but not to ha- achieve the kind of success. Like it would have been, it would have been pretty comparable if, if maybe 
uh, you know, Derek Rose had somehow managed to achieve that kind of incredible mm-hmm. level of success because he's often viewed as the Chicago kid, you know, making it big. And, and the fact that he was uh, probably not a deserving MVP, but one nonetheless, I think really uh, helps tell a, a big part of his story. And a lot, that's something a lot of people still uh, gleam to and, and hang on to. But uh, but he was you know, letting Adidas tell like and that's I'm glad you bring up Derek Rose, right? Because he does, he had that similar sort of. Like, all this stuff was there, right? For the Chicago guy to get drafted number one by the, the, the hometown team. Right. All that stuff was right. It was the same story. I mean, yeah, he wasn't LeBron in high school, but he was a sensation. And um, he tried to let Adidas tell his story, but Derrick Rose is a very boring personality. Like, that's not a criticism. It's just a fact. He's a boring personality. LeBron is a very entertaining, compelling, and engaging personality. It's why, like, Derrick Rose would never do an hour special on anything, let alone his own free agency decision. LeBron evidently would. Um, but you look at the way LeBron has controlled his narrative, just the not only taking control, but just recognizing the leverage that he has, which is really when we talk about like power in America, that's what all it is, is recognize what leverage you have and then exercise that leverage. And that's what he did at 25 years old, him and his team. And yeah, he was, in, he was involved with Leon Rose and World Wide West and these guys. But after the decision, he, he doubles down on his Akron team, on his friend group that he grew up with, and said, you know, the hell with these professionals, like, these are the guys that I'm going to lean on who are building professional experience just like I am, who, whose opinions I trust, who are of a similar mindset than I am, and not willing to use the, the standard corporate structures that are already in place, right, of agencies and PR teams and all that stuff. He just said, I'm not going to use those traditional institutions. I'm going to create my own institutions. I'm going to create my own means of creating my own narrative and that is in direct contrast to what Michael Jordan did, right? That's a direct, like, it's absolutely the opposite of what Michael Jordan did. With Nike. He just handed the keys to Nike and says, make me a star. Hand the keys to Gatorade, said, make me a star. And LeBron said, give me the keys, I'll make myself a star. That's, that's a, yeah, really well said. Uh, I think it's interesting because I think, you know, we look back, especially now after The Last Dance just aired, like, we, we have an image of Michael Jordan as this very angry person who created slights against everybody else, but I don't know that we really have any understanding about him beyond that, right? Because of what you just said, because of the fact that he is, if not necessarily a marketing tool, because I think he was using Nike and Gatorade and McDonald's and everybody else that he shelled out for, he was using them just as much as they were using him, but at the same time, like, he, he never... We never really have much of an insight as to what drives him, and maybe that's all there is to it. But I think we have a more complete idea, anyway, of what LeBron is like and the person he is and what he believes in and the things he takes a stand on. And I think it's in large part due to the fact that he has controlled the narrative as far as any news related to him and and that he's empowered people closest to him to tell those stories. At the same time, I was watching this documentary, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, People like uh, like Michael Wilbon and Chris Broussard and and all the others, even even the guy who wrote the Whore of Akron, which was unbelievable. Um, I I feel like there's still a a large part of a large amount of resentment about LeBron for him being able to control that narrative. That they're somewhat out of the the process that they've been forced out of it a little bit did you get that sense at all or was that just something maybe i read into it a little bit well i think that was sort of the guy's conclusion now i'm blanking on the guy's name who put the whole thing together but um, von Nata, dick von Nata. Von, yeah yeah it was sort of his conclusion at the end was as journalists you know and you and i fall into this camp as well like these guys control their like just power brokers in america now are controlling their own narrative and they don't need 
you know, the institution of media anymore, the way that they needed it before, because there's so many different avenues to just get their own message across. And yeah, it might not be the best story, but it is their story. And that was his quote. And I thought that was really interesting and, and very true. But then he kind of says, it just makes our job harder as journalists. Like that's, that is what we do. And that's why he did this. And, you know, he goes on to reference, like he didn't get to talk to LeBron or, or any, anybody in, in his team because that that's just not what they do anymore. But he had to still dig and dig and dig. And, and we got some interesting things out of this um, ultimately. But it, it is right. It's just going to make our jobs that much harder. And you and I have seen this, and we're going to see it more. We're, I'm really interested to see how, not to completely go off track here, but what does media access look like post the coronavirus pandemic like yeah. in, in NBA locker rooms? And we don't need to go down that rabbit hole, but if we get drawn... like. Players want their stories told. That is one thing that I have found. Players and coaches and executives largely want their stories told, and they may just want to. They may have to start telling it themselves. Like it's one thing if you're LeBron, if you're the biggest star in the league. It's another thing if you're guy ten through fifteen on an NBA roster. Those are the guys that want their names out there and still rely on the media. So if they start drawing media access back on everybody from LeBron to number fifteen on the bench, um, I'm interested to see how those guys have their stories told because that stuff is really important. Um, I think you and I can agree on this, though. Chris Bosh just came out with a newsletter that's going to just tell stories from the 2013 season. That's going to be way more interesting than this documentary. Agreed, 100%. I signed up right away. Uh, remember to listen to and subscribe to Locked on NBA on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you have some time, rate us, review us, say nice things about us. When you get done here, you can tell your smart device to play the latest episode of Hollinger and Duncan. Thanks for listening, and please stay safe.